Why don't you guys go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Give you a short introduction to our message tonight. Luke 9, verse 25. This text, I believe, is the New Testament equivalent, as I see it, to the question that is being asked in Ecclesiastes 1, which Solomon asked the question, what advantage does man have in all of his work, which he does under the sun? This is the question that we're going to be answering tonight. We're going to eventually get to Ecclesiastes. For those of you who are new, uh, welcome to Cross Life. I guess I should give you my name. My name is Deontay. I get the privilege of serving. Hey, I get the privilege of serving here uh, with so many others. This wonderful, wonderful ministry. We're glad you're here. We are studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's going to be fun. And like I said, in the beginning of Ecclesiastes in verse 3, Solomon asked the question, what advantage does a man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? We're going to answer that question tonight. But I thought it would be fitting to take you to the New Testament equivalent to that question, which I believe is Luke 9, verse 25. Before talking about that, Peter has just confessed Christ as Lord. You guys remember this passage, our heart sayings of Jesus last semester. Uh, we worked through this passage, uh, verse 23 through 24. Peter has just confessed Christ as Lord in this text. And following that, Jesus just told his disciples for the very first time, sad news, that he was going to die. He was going to leave them. He was going to be crucified. Then following that, Jesus lays out the cost of discipleship. Actually, before that, Peter didn't really like that. You guys remember that. And then Jesus told him uh, to, to stop being satanic, essentially. And then Jesus lays out the cost of discipleship in verse 23. And he says, if you're there, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. This is discipleship at its very heart. A denial of self, death, death. There in verse 23, take up your cross. In that day and age, right, that would have been the most shameful way to die, humiliating way to die. Verse 24, if you wish to save your life, you got to lose it. This is discipleship, a loss of life for his name's sake. And then anticipating, Jesus anticipating individuals who are going to question or be hesitant as to whether or not they should follow him in light of such a demand, he poses a question in verse 25. It's a wonderful follow-up question in light of what he just said. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Great question. It's a great question. Again, he, he just, he, he put out a hard saying before them. You got to die. You got to die. He told the disciples, I'm going to die, but you're also going to die. You're also going to die if you want to follow me. And again, anticipating people who are going to wrestle with this, he poses a question. What does it profit a man? What does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his soul, Loses his soul means to forfeit his soul. If a man destroys his soul, Jesus is talking about eternal separation. What is it going to profit you? What benefit is your life if that happens? And, of course, the answer is nothing, right? It's not going to profit you anything. And we gain nothing. We profit nothing from that because our lives were not created for this world. We weren't, create, we weren't created to get all we can out of this world. We were not created to eat, to drink, to be merry and rest. It's not where we're here. We were here, we are here because we are image, image bearers of God. We were created in the image of God and that is our, our purpose. And the reason I take you here and just tell you this real briefly, again as a brief introduction, because I hope to show you this by the end of the night, that your life benefits nothing. Hear me out. Your life profits it's nothing when you separate yourself from your purpose, from your purpose. Go to Ecclesiastes now. Ecclesiastes, again, this is the focus of our semester. And so with that in mind, last week uh, we did an overview of the book. Again, we wanted a 100-foot view, if you will, sort of set the course. And last week we covered two things, essentially. 
we identified the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we identified the purpose of the book, the author and the purpose of the book. The author was identified in verse 1. If you're there, look at it, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the words of the preacher, Solomon. Solomon was the leader of the assembly of God, we're told in the Old Testament. He was the leader of Israel. When the people of Israel gathered together, he would publicly declare to them, thus he was called the preacher. He preached to the people of Israel. And Solomon's authorship, we talked about this last week, is is denied by so many scholars, but it's undoubtedly clear from verse one, opening up this book, that Solomon is indeed the author of Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, it says, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. These qualifying statements make it clear that this has to be Solomon. It's clear, it's clear. The book of Proverbs, actually go over to the book of Proverbs really fast, really, really fast. Most people recognize that this is Solomon's handwriting, Proverbs, and Solomon affirms this, the Proverbs of Solomon. And then he says the same thing that he says in Ecclesiastes, the son of David, the king of Israel. Proverbs was written by Solomon as well as Ecclesiastes. And Solomon's authorship is so important to maintain as we work through this book. I think it's crucial because of the quest of the book. Because of the question of the book, what's the question of the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, what's the purpose of life? Does life have any meaning? Now, get even more particular, does life have any meaning under the sun? Remember, that's an important phrase as you study the book of Ecclesiastes. If you miss what that means, you're really, really going to distort the meaning of the book. Does life have meaning under the sun? Removing God from the equation, in other words. Removing God from, from a purely secular standpoint. Not transcending above the heavens. Not transcending into the heavenlies. That's the quest of this book. What's the meaning of life if you take out God? And in light of the question of the book, again, you want someone who's qualified to answer that, right? You just don't want any Joe Schmo to answer that crucial question. You want someone who knew it all. You want someone who knows it all. And you would want someone who has done it all. You want someone who knows it all and you want someone who does it all. Why would you want that? Well, because if you take away a, a, a divinity, right, that, that's the highest a person is going to get, the most knowledge and the most things. So you would want that, and Solomon fits that criteria. Solomon knew it all, and Solomon had it all. Actually, I just want to show you this. Just a reminder, go back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 10. Matt did a wonderful job two weeks ago of giving us an overview of Solomon's life, looking at chapter two all the way to chapter 11. And I wanna look at chapter 10, because chapter 10 lays out the extent of Solomon's wealth, all that he knew and all that he had. First Kings chapter 10, verse 14, starting with what he had. Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 66 talents of gold. I had to do some calculations to get what this number was. It's about a billion dollars in today's dollar. Billion dollars a year. A billion dollars a year. And he reigned on the throne, the scriptures tells us, for 39 years. And this doesn't even include all the things that Solomon had. Actually, look at verse 15. 66 ta talents of gold besides that from the traders and the, the wares of merchant and all the kings of the Arabs and governors of the country besides all those things that they gave to him solomon had so much so much gold that verse 16 tells us he built large shields verse 17 we're told he built he put these large shields in his in his home verse 18 we're told that he made a throne out of all his gold he had so much of it skip it down to verse 20 of chapter 20 12 lions he built around the throne of gold were standing there on six steps on the one side and the other Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. This was unprecedented. I mean, he has so much, so much. Lots of gold, lots of money, but not only gold, he had militia force, lots of horses. Look down to verse 26. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. Again, this just signifies his, his military power. He had 14, 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities. Looking at verse 28. Also Solomon's import of horses, more horses and horses, was from Egypt and Q 
And the king's merchants procured them from Q for a price. Solomon not only had gold, but he had horses. And not only did Solomon have gold and horses, he had lots of women. Again, he had lots of things. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. He loved money, he loved things, everything he wasn't supposed to have, right? Look at verse 3. He has 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives, this is the sad part, turned his heart away from God. But the point is that Solomon had a lot. He had a lot. This is the author of the book that we are studying. Keep that in mind as you work through this book. But not only does Solomon have a lot. Again, if you're going to go on the quest, does life have meaning? You want someone who knows a lot, or you want someone who has a lot, but you also want someone who knows a lot. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth, right? No kidding. In riches, horses, gold, has so much. Not only in riches, but in wisdom as well. How much wisdom? Well, verse 24, all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon. We got to get to this guy. We got to get to this guy, to hear his wisdom, to which God has put in his heart. First Kings chapter 3, right? God said, ask for whatever you want. He asked for wisdom. God grants him wisdom. So wise was Solomon. Again, not only did he have it all, he knew it all. Actually, look at chapter 10. I mean, people were flocking to this guy, the Queen of Sheba. She was a prominent figure in this day. Now, when Solomon, we're sorry, now when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. Uh, you think you're smart, don't you? Let's see how smart you are. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue, with camels carrying spices and very much gold. She was going to give these things to him. She came to Solomon. She spoke with him about all that was in her heart. I'm going to let it all out. Verse 3, what happened? Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. Then her response, when the queen Sheba perceived all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his tables, the seating of his servants, I mean, just everything, the attendance of the waiters. End of verse 5, there was no more spirit in her. I mean, Literally, just in the presence of Solomon just sucked the life out of her. I heard about you, Solomon, but man, you're something. Verse 6, then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. It was a true report. Nevertheless, I don't believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. I had to see it with my own eyes, and behold, the half of it was not told to me. I mean, the half of it. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity, the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. Blessed are those who stand in your presence, Solomon, because you know a lot. How blessed are your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Go back to Ecclesiastes. This is Solomon. This is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. The quest, what's the purpose of life? In all his wisdom, in all that he had, right, Solomon turns and looks back at his life, says, what was it worth? What was it worth? And he answers the question. We don't have to go far. He identifies himself in verse 1, and then he answers the question to the big quest of this book in verse 2. Look at it. He says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's the answer to the question, the Hebrew word havel. We talked about this a little bit last week as well. This Hebrew word is used 13 times. It speaks of idols in the Old Testament. And the reason it speaks of idols, havel, vanity, is because idols have no significance to God. They're of no value to God. What's the meaning of life without God? Under the sun? Not transcending into the heavenlies? It's meaningless. Wait a second. Not just meaningless, not just meaningless, utterly meaningless. Vanity of vanities, right? It's a Hebrew superlative. He's exaggerating. He wants you to get the point. It's like he's shaking you. It's meaningless. So, so meaningless. So, so meaningless. And after Solomon, right, identifies himself in verse 1, the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, the point, vanity, 
He goes on a quest to prove this for the rest of the book. And you guys remember, we just looked at everything, at everything. He's proven it left and right. And basically everything following verse two after chapter one, everything following verse two after chapter one is a proof of the point of the book. It's a proof that life is indeed meaningless. It's what you're gonna hear over and over again, so don't get tired of it. It's the point of the book. We can't get around that. If we're gonna preach on it, we gotta preach on the point of the book, right? That's probably a good idea. And our text falls into that category as a proof. It's a proof that life is meaningless. Our text starts in verse three. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets. Hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south and turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, it is new? Already it's existed for ages which were before us. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will later steal. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand your word and help us to apply your word. Thank you so much for this book. It's such a precious text. Solomon in all his wisdom all that he had, he looks back at it and it says, is, is, it, is it worth it if you remove God? Is it worth it? And his answer is no, Lord. And so in light of the proof that he gives us, the proof to prove that that indeed is the case, I pray that we would hear and that we would apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, our text is a proof. It's a proof that life is meaningless and this proof is initiated by a question there in verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? We're just constantly going to be coming back to this because the whole point of this passage is to answer this question. This is really the center. This is where, why it starts everything. What advantage does man have in all his work under the sun? Advantage, that is a monetary term. It's a monetary term. What profit, what production, what success does man have in everything he does, in all his labors, in all his work. And that idea behind that work, that word work there, toil, is there's a goal in mind. Men are working. Men are working. What do they get from it? When we speak of meaning of life, ladies and gentlemen, when we speak of the meaning of life, we want to know whether or not our lives are of any significance. Don't you want to know that? Is my life of any significance? That's Part of what we're asking when we ask, what's the meaning of life? Would the world be any different without me? Am I making an effect on the world in some way, shape, or form? Am I making some type of an effect on the world? Is my existence even necessary? That's what we're asking. Is my existence benefiting the world? The answer to this question is important. It's going to tell us whether or not we have meaning. Because listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. If we have meaning... If our lives are meaningful, under the sun, taking out God from the equation, we're going to have something to show for it. There's going to be some advantage. So what's the answer that Solomon gives to this question? Well, it's no. No. What advantage does man's life have in all that he does with the goal in mind? Under the sun, taking out God? Nothing. Nothing. And we sort of already knew this, right? We know this because Solomon in verse 2 says everything is meaningless. But the fact that our lives make no impact, hear me out. The fact that our lives make no impact, again, under the sun, without God. The fact that they make no impact, no profit, no production in all that we work, it's just proof that our life is meaningless. It's just proof. Because there's no impact that we make. Solomon gives four reasons why the answer to the question in verse three is no. He gives four reasons, four reasons. He says, everything we do under the sun is of no profit, right? 
There's no surplus. There's nothing good coming out of it. One, because we don't change anything. Nothing changes. Nothing changes in all the work that we do, right? He says, nothing satisfies. Nothing's new. And nothing's remembered. Four things. Four reasons as to why he says no to our life having profit. There's no change that comes from our work. There's no satisfaction that comes from our work. There's nothing new, and there's no remembrance. Let's look at the first one. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? He has nothing. Verse 4, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains the same. Generation, that just speaks of a group of people in a particular time period. Goes just speaks of dying Coming just speaks of birth. A group of people dies off and a group of people comes back. And there's just constant working, working, working. We die and the next people rise up. The next generations rise, rise up, right? People before us, right? They die and then we rise up. There's a constant coming and going and toiling on earth. That's his point at the beginning of verse four. But what do we have to show for it? Surely there's some change, right? And so many people coming on earth, and so many people leaving earth, something is, is bound to change. Something. He says, no. He says, but the earth, end of verse 4, remains forever. One would expect that if our life, <laughs> if our life were of some worth, right, it would make some change in this world. It would make some change. No one in their right mind, none of you here, not, including me, would say something is of value if it doesn't make any change. If it doesn't make any change. So what about our lives? Removing God from the equation? Under the sun, does our life make any change? He says no. The earth remains the same. It remains, it stands, it doesn't move. Some of your versions say it abides forever as people come and go. As people come and go. Just a side note, what this verse is not saying is that the earth is eternal. It is not eternal. Uh, Psalm 102 speaks of this, 25. God founded the earth, but he says even the earth will perish in Psalm 102. Jesus in Matthew 24 in the New Testament set the heavens and earth on multiple occasions. The heavens and earth will pass away. The earth's not eternal. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter speaking of the day of the Lord, the eschatos, he says when that comes, the heaven and earth will be destroyed. Okay, so this is not saying as people come and go, the earth is just going to stay here. It's forever. Again, it's talking about the effect. People come, people go, constantly working, constantly working towards some goal, and there's no effect. There's no effect. It's a hard fact for many people to swallow. This is hard for so many people to swallow. We aren't changing the world Remove God from the equation, no, you're not. At least for the better, right? We know we're polluting the world. <laughs> we're polluting the world, leaving our carbon footprint, if you will. We don't change the world. We don't change the world. Actually, in me thinking about this, I searched the internet for a little bit, and I found this, this article, article titled, We Can't Save the Earth. And I pulled a little excerpt off. I thought it was kind of funny. Let me read it for you. Here's the truth many folks can't seem to grasp. We can't save the earth. The earth is going to die. So while zipping around in our hybrid cars or using paper bags instead of plastic may be an earnest effort to forestall disaster, ultimately, it is nowhere near enough. Don't get me wrong, he says. Cutting emissions, recycling waste, and commitment to solar and wind power makes, makes terrific sense. It makes sense to do that, but cosmically speaking, there are just short-term solutions. What we really need to do is commit buku bucks, he says, to our space program. Because no matter how much we, we conserve, no matter how nice we are to it, that is to the earth, eventually the earth will swallow us up. Just being real. <laughs> and I love this. He said this, believe it or not, George Bush was making sense when he declared that we need to go to Mars. Let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. I laughed at that. But in a sense, it, there, there was some truth in it. 
right? Because we don't make any change. The earth is just getting worse. Why, does, why is this true, though? Why is this true? Why do people come and go and they toil and they work, but the earth remains the same? Well, that's because God made it this way. And God made it this way because this was a result of sin. Go back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, to the beginning, where God spoke earth and everything in it into existence out of nothing in six days. This is the beginning. Six days God created everything and everything in it. And chapter 1, verse 31 tells us what was the result. God saw all that he made. Verse 31 of chapter 1. He saw all that he made, and it was very good. It was good. This world was good. This earth was good. This is the verse we go to to show, right, to prove, right, that the perfection, the perfection of man was true. Everything he made was very good. Not bad, good. <laughs> and there was evening and there was morning in the sixth day. Sixth day creation created everything and everything was good. But then Genesis 3 happened, unfortunately. And the man and the woman did what God said they shouldn't do. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. You're not going to die. He started it all. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw, verse 6 of chapter 3, that it was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So Genesis 1, everything was perfect. Everything was right. Very good. Genesis 3 came the rebellion, the fall. If you remember, God said, if you eat from the tree in which I commanded you not to eat, you're going to die. And that comes just a little bit later in chapter 3, verse 14. And Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle. He cursed the serpent Verse 16, he turns to the woman, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Verse 17, last, but definitely, definitely, definitely not least, then Adam, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I told you not to eat, everything was good, but you rebelled. You rebelled. You put yourself in the place of God. I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, some of your versions say brow, you will eat the, bre you will eat the bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, from, for you are of the dust, and to the dust you shall return. You're going to return. It was perfect, man rebelled, God cursed him. And there in verse 19, we see that God said, you're gonna die, you're gonna go back to the, to the dust. But that wasn't the only curse. Middle of verse 17, he says, cursed is the ground. Adam, Adama, Adama, the Hebrew word for ground. Adam came out of the ground. Not only is Adam cursed, but Adama is cursed. The ground is cursed, that is the earth is cursed. In toil, he says, you will eat of it. In sorrow, it's gonna be hard to produce anything. Why? Well, verse 19, because you're gonna sweat. You're gonna sweat, the sweat of your brow. You know, work was good. Once upon a time, it was perfect. Did you know work was before the fall? Work, work isn't a result of the fall. Work was before the fall. What makes work so laborious and so hard? It's the curse, it is the fall. In toil, he says, you're going to eat of it. And rather than producing just good things, good things on the earth, look at verse 18. Both, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow, and you will eat the plants of the field. Again, middle of verse 17, cursed is this ground. Cursed is this earth. This earth is cursed. People are coming and going, trying to change it. Let's save the world. Ah, uh, you can't do that. Let me tell you about Genesis 3, okay? It's not going to work. Paul says this in the New Testament. Flip over to the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul speaking of the future glory, marching in a systematic way, explaining the gospel, draws him to the future, draws him to the future glory. 
chapter 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And then he gives an illustration. His point is man longs for the glory because they're cursed. He gives an illustration of man's longing in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the Son of God. And so again, while the point of this text is man is longing for glory, we're in this sin-cursed world. We want things to be made right. He uses an illustration, and in this illustration, we get a doctrine, a doctrine, a teaching of the Bible concerning creation. And this doctrine agrees with Genesis 3, that this creation is cursed. This anxious longing, he says, of creation, it's waiting to be redeemed. Why? Verse 20 for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him, him being God. He subjected to, he subjected it because of the curse. An interesting note, ladies and gentlemen, that word futility, so the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you look at that word vanity, right? It's the same word as this Greek word here in verse 20, futility. What is Paul saying? For the creation was subject to vanity, to meaninglessness. Along with man, creation became a mass of nothing. When God said, curse be the Adama, a mass of nothing, a mass of nothing. It became useless, just like we did in a sense, failing to fulfill its true purpose guys why can't why are we coming and going and nothing's happening again and this just proves that our lives are why because we live in a sin cursed world go back to ecclesiastes because we live in a sin cursed world what would an illustration look like to depict this what solomon is saying in verse four that men come and go but nothing ever changes they make no effect. What would an illustration look like to depict all our efforts, all our toil, but to no avail? You know what? Solomon uses the cursed earth to give an illustration of man's working, but never producing anything. Look at verse five. Well, verse four, he says, a generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains the same. Here's an illustration. Let me illustrate this for you. It's like the sun. It's like the sun rises and the sun sets and it hastens to its place and rises again just hastening that's what man is like it's like the sun that's the same word that the psalmist used in psalm 42 as the deer panted for the water solomon says the sun does the same thing just panting to the same spot to do the same thing over again that's what men are like to to any to any avail no it's like the sun Hastening, no profit. Not only is it like the sun, it's like the, the wind. Look at verse six, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along and on a circular course, the wind returns, just circulation. I mean, like this, right? Oh, I'll come back. Right? I mean, that's the picture he's given. <laughs> that's the picture he's given of what we're doing. Is our life of any value if you take out God? I mean, this is what we're like in circles, just running in circles, just running in circles. Look at verse 7. He uses not only the sun, not only the wind, but rivers. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. That word flow just means go. Oh, that rhymes. Flow and go, flow and go. Just goes, going, going, going. It's accomplishing something, right? No, if you look at the beginning of verse 7, he says, yet the sea is not full. It's not full. I mean, just monotony. Just monotony. No profit, no gain. One commentator put it this way. He says these verses, that is verses 5 through 7, amplify verses two through four. They amplify in terms of creation. Though a hubbub of activity, he says, though a whole lot of stuff going on, it's devoid of any progress. 
There is no gain for man in his toil. Similarly, there is no gain for creation in her toil. Three examples are given. The repetitious cycle of the sun, like the runner on a circular track. The wind blowing around in its circuits to no apparent purpose. The waters gushing into the seas without ever finding their task accomplished. Again, what advantage is man's life? Nothing if you take out God. It's just monotony. It's just circular, not accomplishing anything. It doesn't change anything. What's the summation of this, right? You, you guys get the point. Just want to, just, this is what the scriptures teach, though. What's the summation? Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man's not able to tell it. <laughs> he says it's wearisome. What does he mean by that? It's exhausting. We, we can't even speak of it. Our, our life, if you take out God, I mean, it's just really, really exhausting. If you remove God from the equation, man's work has no advantage. It's just a bunch of circular nothingness over and over and over again. So again, point one, what's the purpose of life? What's the advantage in all that we do? What is it if you take out God? Well, he says nothing, because nothing we do ever changes. That's verses 3 or verses 4 through 8. But secondly, he says nothing ever satisfies. So all that we do, we never change anything, but in all that we do, we never satisfy anything. Ourselves or anything else, look at the end of verse 8. All things are wearisome, monotony, just nothingness, not accomplishing anything. Man is not able to tell it. Oh, on top of that, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing. If our work was of any value, ladies and gentlemen, going back to verse three, again, that's the point. He's just trying to answer that question. If our work was any, of any advantage, wouldn't you think there would be some satisfaction? <laughs> if we had any, any value in all that we did under the sun, don't you think we would rest a little bit? Don't you think we would stop a little bit? Actually, I was just thinking about this. Like when I play football, when you play football, you're, you're, it's never enough. You're always trying to get to the next level. Always, always. You're never good enough, right? We used to walk into film rooms and just get destroyed. Oh, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. I'm like, okay, great, great, great. Then even when you have a good game, oh, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. You're, you're never there. And, and as I was thinking about that this week, I said, there's a sense in which that is good because you're always striving, right? But in a sense, that, that shows what Solomon is trying to say here. We're never satisfied. Nothing we do can ever satisfy. We never reach the ceiling, if you will. Not only is all we do exhausting, it's all wearisome, doesn't satisfy. Again, look at verse 7. It's like the rivers, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet it, the sea is not filled. It's not filled. Solomon knew a little bit about this, right, satisfaction? Because he tried to pursue it in everything, didn't he? He tried to pursue it in just about everything. And he said pleasure doesn't satisfy. Riches don't satisfy. Work doesn't satisfy. Actually, look, look at chapter 2, verse 1. I, I feel like we can read chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the richest, richest chapter in all of Ecclesiastes, in my opinion. Matt's going to, he's going to teach on this five weeks straight. It's going to be wonderful. I feel like we can read this every week. We need a reminder. I, I, I need to remind myself of this every week. Solomon said, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure. I'm going to give you all the pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. How to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for man to do under the sun in their few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I made gardens and parks. I did it all. I made ponds, verse 6. In verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. Verse 8, I also collected for myself silver and gold. We saw that in 1 Kings 10. He had lots of it. Verse 9, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me, all the kings in Jerusalem, greatest king ever. My wisdom also stood by me. Verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. I'm trying to see if I can get some satisfaction. 
I'm pursuing everything. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. What was the result? Verse 11, thus I consider all that I did, all that I did to satisfy myself through seeking all this. Behold, all was vanity, striving after wind. There was no profit under the sun. That doesn't satisfy. Again, he says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Pleasures don't satisfy. Riches don't satisfy. He tells us that in chapter Chapter 5, work doesn't satisfy, neither the, the fruit of our work, none of it satisfies. What advantage, again, I'm going back to the question, what advantage is your life if you remove God? In all that you do, in all that you do, what do you have to show for that your life has meaning? You don't change anything. You don't satisfy anything. What do you have to show for? He gives a third reason why the answer is no. Nothing changes, nothing satisfies. And he says nothing is ever new. Looking at verse 9. He says that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. This, this verse can be kind of confusing. I wrestle with this verse the most um, because we live in the 21st century, <laughs> right? Technology, the medical world, space travel, right? George Bush wants to do space travel. Uh, <laughs> we live in the 21st century. And so there's nothing new. There's nothing new. Self-driven cars. I mean, I watched a YouTube video. They're, these things are coming. Self-driven cars, iPads, Google Glasses, virtual world, come on. Nothing new. Vaccinations, breaking edge in terms of research and cancer research. Space travel to the moon, come on. Robots to Mars, nothing new. Listen, Solomon is not talking about new inventions that advance our world. That's not his point. That is not his point. His point is this. He's talking about new inventions that satisfy our appetites. In other words, he's talking, he's saying there's no new avenues for us to pursue worth. We've tried it all. We've done it all. Listen, if something we do is going to be of some advantage, if it's going to be of some profit to answer the question of verse 3, we're going to need some new exploration. We're going to need some novel exploration because everything we have tried to find satisfaction in doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. So we need something new. But we have nothing new, he says. There's nothing new. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says the same thing. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. It's already happened. It's already happened. The, the Hebrew construction of, of, this, of this verse, that which has been and that which will be in chapter one, is really interesting. It's really interesting. Solomon is basically doing this with the future and the past. He's equating the two. There's no distinction. In terms of going after things to try to satisfy ourselves. listen, there's nothing new. There is nothing new. There's nothing new under sun. That's what he says at the end of verse 9. But then you got the skeptic, right? There's got to be something new. I was kind of a skeptic at first, right? Verse 10, is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new. Okay, we found it. We, we found it. Solomon didn't lay it out in the book of Ecclesiastes, but we, we, we've got it. This is new. This is a new avenue. We're going to find satisfaction in this. He says, it's already existed. It's already existed. You're not going to do anything new. You can't speak against this, ladies and gentlemen. You can't deny this. Go over to chapter 6. Here's why you can't deny this. Chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever existed has already been named. Whatever existed has already been named. That is, man. Man existed. It's already been shown that it's lorded over. And it's known what man is. He cannot dispute. As Solomon pulls the rug out of everything, right, that we try to find satisfaction is, he noticed some people are going to say, well, 
that ain't right. I can get satisfied in this, right? We haven't tried this before, right? He says, no, you can't dispute. You can't dispute with him who is stronger than, right, than you, God. God is stronger than you. You can't deny this. Nothing we do ever changes anything. Nothing we do ever satisfies. There is no new avenue to pursue satisfaction in. Okay? Last one. Nothing is remembered. In all that we do, nothing is remembered. I mean, this is just an onslaught, man. <laughs> you, do you think your life is of value, Solomon says? No way. No way, because nothing that you do is remembered. Verse 11, he says, look at it. It's our last verse. There's no remembrance of earlier things. Also, the latter things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Nothing new. Here's a question I have for you guys. I want everybody to look up. Can anyone in here... <laughs> Tell me what their great, 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 grandmother did for a living. Can you tell me that? Anybody? Going once? Going twice? Anyone? You wouldn't speak up now anyway, right? I'm preaching. <laughs> can, can anyone, can, can anyone tell me what their great, great, great grandmother mother did for, for a living? Or let me ask you this question. Tell me something significant about her, about her life. Anyone? Anyone? Listen, people in the past are past. You got that? You can write that down. People in the past are past. Things in the past are past. None of you can tell me that, and I couldn't tell you anything because they're of no significance. If they were of significance, they would live on. They would endure. They would last, but they don't because they aren't. <laughs> My coach used to say, one of our coaches says, you want to be long remembered before the game trying to pump us up? Want to be long remembered, Deontay, or you want to be soon forgotten? Go out there and have the game of your life. People are going to remember you. In the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, I get what you're saying, coach. <laughs> but everyone really is going to get forgotten. But I didn't want to put a, I don't want to pop his bubble. You know, he was on a high, so. <laughs> I'm like, everyone's really going to be forgotten. Yeah. Everything. This is actually what shook Solomon up. This is what made him start to think, really. I'm going to die. I'm going to be forgotten. Believe it or not, we are not going to remember Michael Jordan in 100 years, 200 years. Everyone's going to forget. Look at what Solomon says in chapter 2, verse 13. Again, this hit him hard. He says, and I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. He tried to pursue satisfaction in, in wisdom. He says, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one, one fate befalls them all. The <laughs> same thing's going to happen to them both. Then I said to myself, I'm wise, Solomon, right? So wise, Queen She became, she said, and half of it wasn't told to her. He said, then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it would also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? Why? What's the point? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. Why is it vanity? Verse 16, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man. As with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days, all will be what? Forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So reality check, ladies and gentlemen. This is what Ecclesiastes is. If you take out God, here's what you got. No change, no change. No satisfaction, Nothing new, and nothing is going to last. What advantage is our life and all that we do when you remove God? There is none. 
There is none. Ladies and gentlemen, our lives of no, are of no value when you take God out of the equation. Put that at the bottom of your sheet. I want you to remember that. It's of no, no value when you take God out of it. So then the question is, where can we find meaning in our lives? Can't do it on our own. Go back to Genesis 1. We're going to close here. Genesis 1. To the beginning. Verse 26. Then God said, let's make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here's his dominion. God created man again in his own image. Stated again, beginning of verse 26, verse 27, in the image of God, he created him again. Male and female, he created them in his image. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish. Ladies and gentlemen, where do we find purpose? We gotta go back to the beginning. We are not gonna find purpose. Our lives, when you remove God, they have no value, no significance. But immediately, once you place the God of the Bible back into the life, then you have purpose. Then you have purpose. Praise God, huh? Praise God. Because if we didn't have God, the, the one whose image we bear, we'd be walking around, we'd just be a bunch of circles, monotony, nothing, never satisfying, never doing anything. Praise God, right? I feel like Genesis 1, though, is essentially what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. I feel like that should be stated every week because that's the conclusion of the book. What does he say? Fear God, keep his commands. For what? This is man's duty. This is his life. This is where he finds value. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Solomon, and really you, Lord, speaking through Solomon, made it clear from a purely secular standpoint, everything we do is of no profit, is of no advantage. Because everything we do doesn't change anything. We, we're never satisfied. Just a ravenous appetite that is not satisfied there's nothing new there's no new avenues there's nothing new under the sun to find profit in in this sinful cursed world there's nothing new and there's no remembrance of anything lord i thank you especially for that last one we're fleeting this life is but a vapor this life is but a vapor lord especially if we remove you from the equation but we're so thankful that we have you we're so thankful of Genesis 1. We find our purpose because God is in the equation, because you are in the equation, Lord. Thank you so very much for that, for giving us purpose, to bear your image, or as Solomon said, to fear you and to keep all your commandments. Help us to do this, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.